0: Well, good morning, everyone! Again, happy Easter, happy Resurrection Sunday. We're so glad that you're with us, and this really is a day of celebration. And you know, our our world, we in our world, we love to celebrate things that are new. Um, when you have a child, you celebrate their first everything, right? First word, first step. Um, first day at school, you know, as you tearfully drive behind the bus watching your child go off to school, maybe just me. Um, But uh, we celebrate new things. We love new cars, new homes, new jobs. We love to talk about things that are new in our life, even new movies, movies, a new season of your favorite show, a new album from your favorite band. I'm particularly excited, want to hear about new restaurants uh, coming to Syracuse, and I immediately make plans as to how soon I can get there to try a new dish. I just, I, I love, we love new things, and new stores, maybe new places to shop. Actually, yesterday I was driving on uh, 31 here, and I noticed that at Great Northern Mall, they are putting in a new Dunkin' Bright furniture store. They painted it, and and I was so excited. I mean, I don't care about the furniture, but it was just so excited. There's something new, and I like, hope for Great Northern Mall, amen? I mean, we can get behind that, right? Like, that this would not be a blight on our community, but that instead there would be some use behind it. We love new things, but how long is something new? How long is something new? This building next door where the children are this morning, I learned last weekend hanging out with some people in church that some people still call it the new building. We built it 17 years ago. And some people still refer to it as new, how long does something stay new? And we could debate that. How long is an outfit new? How long is a puppy new? But in a world where we can debate how long is something new, I think we all would agree with this statement. Nothing in this world gets newer. Nothing gets newer. And if you're at all close to my age or older, you feel that truth in your body, don't you? that nothing in you or about you is getting newer. We know this is true, like no one would argue this, but there's actually lots of evidence that we're not okay with that. We do so much to try to stop us getting old, so much we try to do to slow it down or to at least distract ourselves from it. It's almost as if there's something inside each of us that there's this unshakable, unavoidable sense that this is not the way it should be, that things should and could get new. Earlier this week in the New York Times, there was an opinion piece written. It was an interview, actually, with a pastor, a former pastor in New York City. He's an author and well-known. His name's Tim Keller. And Tim Keller, about a year ago, maybe a little longer, received a diagnosis of stage four pancreatic cancer. It's a diagnosis that my family is very familiar with. That's how we lost my father. And um, they interviewed him in the New York Times, and they wanted to ask this sort of like legendary New York City pastor... Having received this diagnosis of stage four pancreatic cancer and having the prognosis of a very short time to live, what does Easter mean to you this year? How is it resonating with you? And in his answer, he actually starts by referencing an essay that was written by J.R.R. Tolkien, who is most common to us as the man who wrote The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings trilogy. But J.R.R. Tolkien, who was a good religious man, he wrote an essay called On Fairy Stories, And he says in that essay that there are indelible human longings. We didn't give them to ourselves. Nobody taught us to have these longings. It's just in us. Indelible human longings that only fantasy, fairy tales, or sci-fi can really speak to. All the sci-fi fans are excited about that. He says that all human beings have a fascination with, and listen to these things, with the idea of escaping time, escaping death, being able to talk with and have relationship with other living things, being able to live long enough to achieve your artistic and creative dreams and being able to find a love that perfectly heals. I would add to that list. I would add to that list being able to get newer. And then Tolkien asked the question, why do we have these longings? Why do we all have these longings? And as a Christian, he thinks the reason is that we were not originally created by God to die. And we all deep down kind of know that this is the way life ought to be. And If the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened, then all of those things are literally going to come true for us. In the last book of the Bible, a man named John, who was one of the 12 disciples that followed Jesus, he had a vision of the end of time. And in his vision, he sees something that speaks to our longing for newness. Revelation 21.5, John's vision, he says, He who was seated on the throne said, he sees God seated on his throne at the very end of time, and he says, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Listen, we believe that everything God says is trustworthy and true. So if God goes out of his way to say, Write this down, these are trustworthy and true, then it means that what he said right before that is a truth that our hearts really need to hear. Behold, I am making all things new. How is this possible at the very end of time when everything should be at its oldest, at its most worn down, faded, and decayed? How in that moment could it be possible that God says, I'm making all things new? What makes that possible? What makes it true? Who makes it possible? We're going to look this morning uh, at a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is a a letter that was written to a group of believers in a city called Corinth a couple thousand years ago. And in this letter, they're being reminded of the very event that we and millions of people around the world are celebrating this morning, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And look what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says that if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all of All people most to be pitied. What he's saying is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ doesn't just mean that you have hope for this life, but it means that there is hope for the life to come. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and then he calls Jesus the first fruits of those who have died, those who have fallen asleep. We're going to come back to that phrase at the end of the message. The first fruits. For as by a man came death, he's referencing all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, Adam, Eve, by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now, there's two things that make this passage remarkable. Number one is what it claims, and we'll get to that in just a second. But number two is the person who wrote this, the person who's making this claim. The man who wrote this, his name is Paul. And Paul, at a, at a time in his life, hated Jesus, hated Christians. In fact, this man, Paul, who wrote these letters to this church about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he devoted the entirety of his life to chasing down Christians and to persecuting them and to arresting them, getting them thrown into jail, and in some cases, even overseeing their execution, obviously something radical changed in his life. And what we see, if we know the story, is that like many other people, Paul's life was radically changed, turned upside down, because he had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus Christ. In fact, earlier in this chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes a list of the many people who saw the resurrected Jesus after he was killed, after he was buried, after he rose from the dead. Paul makes this list in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, you can read it for yourself, of the men and the women who saw Jesus the resurrected Jesus, walking around and teaching and talking to them. Over 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus in one sitting. And then Paul says, I also saw him. Now, Paul saw him in a vision. Paul was actually on his horse traveling to a place called Damascus to chase down more Christians when God literally knocked him off his horse and he had a vision of the resurrected Christ. It completely changed the direction of Paul's life, so he went from being an enemy of the church to being a leader of the church, and much of the New Testament is written by this man. Now, before I talk about the claims of this passage, I have to just say something about Paul and what it means for us this morning. Number one, it means this. It really doesn't matter what's happened in your life up until now. There's nothing you've done. There's nothing about your past that disqualifies you from God's love. There's nothing that you've done that means that God can't turn your life around and use you to honor him and to serve others. But the other thing that this means is that many of you, many of us, have people that we've prayed for for years that we want them to know God's love and we want them to experience the freedom that's found in Jesus, don't give up. Don't stop praying. If this man's life could be turned around, then anyone's life can be turned around. So Paul writes these words and the claim that Paul makes here is so stunning. What Paul is actually saying, and he says it earlier in verse 14, we didn't read it, but Paul says, if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then our preaching and your faith is in vain. In vain means it's worthless has no value. And so what Paul is saying is that everything about Christianity rises and falls on a historical event. Did Jesus rise from the dead or did he not? There may, you may, you know, there's lots of people in the room this morning that maybe are visiting or just here and you're not that familiar with the Christian faith or maybe you're not, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. We're glad that you're here. But I do wanna, I just wanna say this. You may have lots of fair issues with Christianity. Listen, the history of Christianity is not great. There's lots of reasons to write it off. There's lots of reasons to have issues with it. I understand that. But I just want you to ask you to consider this. Christianity does not rise and fall on people's ability to actually live it out properly. There's a lot of people that don't, including all of us in this room at times. Christianity does not rise and fall on whether or not you like its ethical standards or its moral standards. It doesn't. Christianity rises and falls on the event that we're talking about this morning. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then forget everything else he did and said. Who cares? Who cares? But if he predicted his own death and his own resurrection and pulled it off, then we need to listen. He's worth listening to. The resurrection is one of two things. When you look at history and you see how much history has been shaped by this man's life, his death and his resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is only one of two things. It's either the greatest hope or it's the greatest hoax. There's no middle ground. Either it's the greatest hope for all of us or it's the greatest lie that's ever been told. So which is it? We have to decide. Now, I don't have the time this morning to give a thorough defense for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There are books out there that do that. And if you are interested, I can point you in that direction. But I do want to mention three reasons why I think we can trust the resurrection story. Let's just be honest. It's a crazy story. I mean, this is not average stuff. So it's worth it to ask questions about it. But I think there's three reasons, and this will probably not convince you, but maybe it will help you to look closer. The first thing is this. The story, the resurrection story, it's number one, it's way too honest for people to have made it up. There's so much, here's what I'm trying to say. There's so much content in the resurrection story that is counterproductive to the advancement of the Christian faith later that no one would have possibly made this up because the leaders of the early church look like morons in most of these stories. They keep getting it wrong, they keep messing up, they betray Jesus, they deny Jesus, they run away from Jesus. If you're making this story up and you're the leader of the movement and the only reason we have these stories is because the followers of Jesus told them to other people, If you're making this story up, you don't make yourself look that way. These stories are way too honest to have been made up. Also, if you're making up the story of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, you would have never made the women the first witnesses of the resurrection. And the reason why is because at that time in history, in that culture, and in that society, and of course this was wrong, but this is the way it was, a woman's woman's testimony was not admissible in court, Roman court or Jewish court. So if you're trying to make up a story, how are we going to convince people to believe that this crazy thing happened? The last thing you would say is, let's make the women the first witnesses. That'll go over really well. It wouldn't have gone over at all. It would not have validated in any way the credibility of this story. And so when you look at this story, it's far too counterproductive for someone to have created it. It's way too honest for it to have been made up. Secondly, it's, it was being shared way too soon for it to be a legend. Paul wrote the letter that we read earlier 20 years after the events in question, 20 years later. In fact, when Paul mentions the names of people who saw the resurrected Christ, he includes the phrase, many of them are still alive. Here's what Paul's saying. Don't take my word for it. Go talk to them. They saw Jesus. They saw the resurrected Jesus. If you're gonna create a story this wild, if you're gonna create a legend this out there, you need hundreds or thousands of years To do so, you cannot create a legend this quickly in 20 years. It simply can't be done. And then the last thing is that this story, and maybe this is the most compelling one, it was way too costly to be a lie. This story cost people their lives. People do not knowingly die for a lie. There are people out in our world today who are dying for things that they believe to be true that are lies, right? But people don't die for a lie that they know is a lie. And if anybody would have known that this whole resurrection thing was a lie, it would have been the disciples. It would have been Jesus' closest followers. But if you follow the course the rest of their lives, none of them at any point in their lives back off their story, even when it cost every single one of them, according to history and tradition, their lives. It's not like they all got martyred at the same time and they locked arms. and They're like, we're going to take this secret to our grave. We're never going to tell anybody. They died one at a time, scattered all over the globe. And with their dying breath saying, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He is the risen Savior and King. Listen, this story cost them way too much for it to have been a lie. And again, this may not be convincing to you if you're not comfortable or if you don't agree with this story. But I would just say this. When you look at history, and when you look at the course of history and the way it was changed by Jesus' life, death, burial, and what we're talking about this morning, the resurrection, you do have to wrestle with the question, what's the best explanation for what happened next? How do you explain the explosion of this faith that had no place in the Greek world or in the Roman world or in the Jewish religion? None of those three worldviews had any room for what this story was. And yet it exploded to the point where within 300 years it was the official religion of the empire of Rome. I know alone that's not enough evidence to say I believe, but you at least have to wrestle with that and say, "Why? I need to look closer at these claims, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, the resurrection is the climactic moment in what we would call the meta-narrative of Scripture. Meta-narrative is just a big way of saying story. The Scripture is telling this big story and that the resurrection is the moment, that the whole story is building towards the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and then the resurrection of Jesus changes the direction of the rest of the story. This is the climax of the story, the resurrection of Jesus. There's a famous American scriptwriter named David Mamet, and he says that every compelling story Every movie you love, every book that has captured your imagination, they all have the same basic three plot um, process. They all have the same three basic components. And he describes it this way. Yes, no, but wait. Yes, no, but wait. And so if you think of your favorite romantic comedy, yes, a couple finds each other, and they love each other, and it seems like it's perfect. no. Someone's telling a lie. Someone's not being honest. Somebody's bookstore shut somebody else's bookstore down. That's for my wife's favorite movie. Uh, But wait, they get through it and they figure it out and happily ever after, right? I mean, let's be honest, that's romantic comedies usually. Or maybe you're not a rom-com fan and you're like me and my daughter Caroline. We love watching sports movies, Disney inspirational sports movies, or at least I love watching them and she sits there with me. And so in, in, in a sports movie, how does it work? The beginning, yes, there's a team that's working together towards a goal. No, there's a better team out there that's standing between them and the championship, or they have all this inner struggle and strife. They'll never figure it out. But wait, a good coach, an important moment, changes the direction of that team, and they go on to be successful. Or maybe you're a superhero fan, Marvel films. Yes, somebody's given a special power, a superpower. No, there's a villain and there's an identity crisis and there's all sorts of issues in their lives, but wait, they work through it and they save the world. Yes, no, but wait. And the story of scripture actually follows the same pattern. In fact, I think this is where everybody gets this pattern from. God's telling a story that is yes, no, but wait. And let me help you see this as we wrap things up. If we look at all the scriptures, four different acts, act number one is this, that God made all things new. We believe in a God who made all things new, and that he created a world, a paradise, and however he did that, I know there's lots of debate on that, but God is the originator of life. That's what we believe, and that life comes from God, and that God created a world in which humans would have both freedom and flourishing, and that we would be created in his image, in the image of God, he created things and he would say, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. That then when he created us in his image, he looked at us and said, it's very good. We were created in God's image to do God's work. So when God created things, it was perfect but not complete. It wasn't complete because there was still something for us to do. He put us in creation. It says he put man into the garden to work the garden, which means he put us here not just to wait to get out of here, but because there's something important for us to do that honors him, that glorifies him, and that bears his image well. Yes, God made all things new, act one. We get to enjoy that in the Bible for two chapters. (laughs) And then Genesis chapter three, act two. Sin makes new things old. No, Sin enters the world through the rebellion of one. Sin brings shame. We're familiar with that feeling. Sin causes us to blame others. We've all been there. Sin left us imperfect and incomplete because sin is not just a morality issue. Sin is a mission issue. We're not just not like God any longer, but we don't do the things that God calls us to do. We're not living for his purpose. We're living for ours. We have our own plans and our own agenda. We forfeited the ability to be like him, but also to do the things that he's called us to do. So yes, God made all things new. No, sin makes new things old. And then we come to act three that we're celebrating this morning. But Jesus makes old things new. Jesus ma- and when Jesus came teaching, do you know what people said about his teaching? You know what adjective they used to describe it? new. This is a new teaching. And you know, when Jesus was using metaphors to explain how things worked in his kingdom, he used metaphors like a new garment, new wineskins. He talked about new commandments. He talked about a new covenant, that there was a new way to be right with God. And as Jesus walked the earth and he would heal people and he would do miracles, when he was doing that, what he was doing was he was giving us a glimpse of newness That in a world where nothing gets new, Jesus with his words and with his teaching and with his perfect substitutionary life, sinless life, he was showing us the newness of God in a person. Jesus was everything God wanted to say to the world in a person in the newness of who Jesus was. And then Jesus died, and one of the scriptures that Paul wrote says that when Jesus died, God made Jesus, who never sinned, to become our sin. He never sinned. He lived perfectly in our place because we needed his perfect performance record. We couldn't do it ourselves. He did that for us, but God made him, who never sinned, to become our sin. So that we might have the righteousness, another way of understanding the word righteousness is goodness or rightness or approval. So because Jesus took our brokenness, our sin, and our shame upon himself on the cross, that's what we talked about on Good Friday. Because Jesus did that, we have the goodness of Jesus attributed to us. His performance record is on your resume now. If you place your faith and trust in him, his, his trophy's on your shelf. Uh, it's hung around your neck. This is what it means, that Jesus, with his death, he who was new became old so that we might become new. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, and behold, the new has come. I have Pastor Antonia join me up here. We're going to sing and close in just a minute. And then Jesus' resurrection. Jesus makes old things new. We read earlier that Jesus was the first fruits of all who have died. Well, when the harvester goes out to the fields to get harvest, the first fruits is the the very first thing that he brings in. And it doesn't mean that the harvest is done. It doesn't mean that he got everything. In fact, it means that the harvester, she went out and she got some, but she's going back out to get more because the first fruits is the promise of more. So when the authors of scripture call Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection for all who have died, what they're saying is that what Jesus experienced on that Sunday, that resurrection power in his life, he was the first of many who would experience that resurrection power. He was the first fruits, And what it means is this, that if Jesus walked out of his grave on that Sunday morning, that someday you and I can also. If he left the grave behind him, then someday we will also, because he's the first fruits. God makes all things new, yes. Sin makes new things old. No, but wait. Jesus, he makes old things new. And then we get to act four. What's act four? Well, it's how every fantasy story ends. Happily ever after, God will make all things new. In fact, when John saw this vision, he said, I see a new heavens and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth or the old heaven and the old earth has passed away and the sea was no more. The sea represented mystery, the unknown, the uncertain areas of life and death itself. And yet John in this vision of the end of times, he says, those things don't exist anymore. Can you imagine a world in which there's no more unknown uncertainty? No more death. This is the promise that we have at the end of the story. In fact, later in the chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that on the day when God makes all things new, a saying will come to pass. And this is the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? If all things are gonna be made new, then here's what it means. Someday even death will die someday even death will die someday all the sad things will come untrue someday all the wrong things will be made right and someday every day will be better than one before it and we will live forever in a place where every day gets newer every day we learn more of God's mercy more of his love new day after day In the end of the interview, Tim Keller said this in the New York Times. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened, then ultimately God is gonna put everything right. Suffering is going to go away. Evil, the evil we see around our world, the evil we see in Ukraine, evil is going to go away. Death is going to go away. Aging is going to go away. Pancreatic cancer is going to go away. Now, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not happen, then I guess all bets are off. But if it actually happened, then there's all the hope in the world. All the hope in the world. In a world where nothing gets newer and we feel it in our bones and we know it's not right, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead means that someday everything Everything will be made new. The hopes you've lost, the dreams you've lost, the people you've lost. Everything will be made new. And if someday everything will be made new, and if we're going to spend eternity experiencing great newness day after day after day forever, then that celebration can and should begin now. So resurrection isn't just this pie in the sky hope for someday when I die, I hope I go to heaven. The resurrection means that tomorrow you can go into work today. You can walk into a difficult family environment. Some of us, uh, you you, you can face the diagnosis. You can face the prognosis. And instead of losing your hope and your joy and losing your way, you can remember Jesus Christ is my hope. There's all the hope in all the world. Because if he left it all behind, someday will I. And I have this hope because of him. Let's pray together this morning.